Our series right now is called Surprise. In the first week, we talked about the, what a surprise does. We said that in life, we have certain expectations about how we feel things are going to go, but a surprise comes along and rewrites the narrative. And so as we look at the Christmas story already, we're learning that the Christmas story, that means the story of the birth of Jesus, is not just... Um, It's not just filled with surprises, it's nothing but surprises. It's one surprise after another. And so in week one, we saw how the Christmas story begins with the birth of John the baptizer, who is the forerunner of Jesus, and his parents are elderly, they don't think they're going to have any children, and God comes along and says, surprise, it's not too late. And we talked about that. And then last week, we talked about Mary, who had to get a really big surprise, because she's a virgin, and she discovers that she's pregnant, and the angel comes along and says, here's what's going to happen. And we talked about how that sometimes God comes along to those of us who feel that we're unlikely or feel that we are in obscurity, and God says, surprise, I choose you. Today, I want to talk about Joseph. You know, uh, to be honest with you, as you think about Joseph in the Christmas story, he almost seems like the forgotten man of Christmas, right? I mean, when I was a kid, everybody used to put up nativity scenes. It was legal in those days, I guess, for towns to put up nativity scenes. That's before we discovered all kinds of stuff that is, that's in the Constitution, but not in the Constitution. Anyway, <clears throat> the one thing I notice about these nativity scenes is that everybody is doing something except for Joseph. I mean, Mary has just given birth to the Christ child. There's the Christ child lying in the, in the manger. Of course, he's the center of attention. And then the shepherds are coming to worship. The wise men are coming to present gifts. Um, the angels are singing. Um, if, according to the song, even the cattle are lowing. I don't know what that is. <clears throat> At least I didn't know till 4 o'clock last night. Because after I got through with the service, the four o'clock service, and I was signing devotionals out in the lobby, a farmer came up. He told me he had a big farm up north of Newton, and he said, Pastor, let me tell you what lowing is. He said, that's the sound that a mother cow makes to her little calves. And he said, it's a very sweet sound. So now I know what lowing is. And then if you believe the song, there's a little kid playing a drum solo over there. (laughs) But what about Joseph? I mean, being honest, he seems like a bystander. I mean, you and I both know, we talked about this last week, Joseph is not the biological father of Jesus. So with all these things going on, all these people doing things at the crash, the nativity scene, you sort of wonder, is Joseph really needed? And beyond that, for instance, when you get into the story of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, the stories of Jesus, Joseph is never mentioned And scholars are almost universally agreed that he would have died before Jesus began his earthly ministry. So if he's not the biological father of Jesus, and he's going to die before Jesus begins his earthly ministry, Joseph sort of begs the question, so what? So what, right? Well, let's meet him anyway. I've had fun through the years thinking about Bible characters in modern day times because, you know, when we read about people in the Bible, especially those of us who grew up in church or grew up in religion, we sort of imagine them as walking around with halos around their heads. We think of them as saints and everything. But I've always believed that if you, if you, um, if you took the people in the Bible and you, you brought them into modern day times and took them to the mall and dressed them, they'd be just like you and me. So for Joseph, I always have fun kind of imagining what he looked like, you know? I mean, uh, for me, Joseph is what we used to call back in the 60s a working man. He might carry a union card. He's a blue-collar guy. Um, If you got into Joseph's closet, you're not going to find any Armani there or any Calvin Klein or Hugo Boss. I think he's more of a Wrangler guy, a Duluth trading 
guy, you know. Red wing. That's what you're going to find in Joseph's closet. Maybe you could say it this way. He was the guy who would give you the flannel shirt off his back. I think about Joseph, ladies, if a craftsman, you know, comes to your house and you offer him a glass of iced tea and he says, thank you, ma'am, I sort of hear Joseph saying that. That sounds right to me when I think about who he is. He is the carpenter who would take a loss before he would let somebody be unhappy with a job. He is a simple man. But for all of us in our 21st century postmodern culture, don't read that dumb. He is simple in the sense that things are either right and wrong with him. They are either good or they are bad. They are either wise or they're unwise. There is stuff you do and there is stuff you don't do. There is stuff you always do and there is stuff that you never do. Now, this is not my message today, but I think with what's going on in our country, we need to stop for a moment, pull over to the side of the road, and let's have a little talk about something. You would have to be from another planet not to know about all these sexual harassment cases that are coming out in our culture today. And what's happening is prominent individuals from the world of entertainment, from the world of politics, sports, religion, prominent figures are being found out to be predatory, and their stories are coming out. I want to tell you, this is just my take on this, I think that's a wonderful thing, and it is long overdue. Because to me, one of the, it is a horrible thing for a, a man or a woman to feel harassed to the point that they might not feel comfortable earning their livelihood because some predator is there executing his or her, her work. And I just think it's time for us to have this discussion. But I want to tell you what I believe today. And while we're talking about Joseph... I don't think we're, I think we're just touching the tip of the iceberg. In fact, I am convinced that we're in our country engaged in a cultural hypocrisy. You know, through the years I've heard people say, well, I don't want to go to church because there are hypocrites there. Well, it seems to me there are hypocrites in Hollywood too, aren't there? There seem to be hypocrites in Washington, D.C. There seem to be hypocrites in the news industry. There are, of course, hypocrites in the religious world. You know, there are hypocrites in sports. You know where hypocrisy resides? It resides in a place where there is a, a pseudo sense of righteousness, where there is a saccharine righteousness, where people can make up their own rules as they go, and that tends to be in every circumstance. Guys, let me tell you something here today. Our problem is sin, and until we identify it, we're going to have issues. Now, I want to do something with you for a few moments. This is not about Joseph, although I guess in some ways it kind of is. He got me thinking about this. I want you to see three statements on the monitor here, and we're going to start with the first one. I'd like to see how you feel about it. Here we go. Sin that doesn't hurt anybody is okay. How do you feel about that? Because, and again, I need to let you know, I'm not talking about in a legal sense. I don't deal in the legal world. I'm not out to make, I'm not out to make legislation or rules. That's not my world. I speak into the moral and spiritual climate of, a, of our nation. But how do you feel about that statement? Sin that doesn't hurt anybody is okay. Because that is the primary feeling of our culture today. In fact, we have all kinds of subtext that go with that. I don't judge. Who am I to say what's right and wrong? All those things are just summary statements that agree with this first statement. Sin that doesn't hurt anybody is wrong. And by the way, it is a good thing not to judge, but it is just as wrong to say that conduct is right as it is to say conduct is wrong. Both are judging. And God has not called us to judge. He is the judge. But let's just deal with that for a moment. Sin that doesn't hurt anybody is okay. Probably the vast majority of Americans would agree with that. Okay, let's go to the second statement. 
Sin that hurts somebody is bad. That is what this whole harassment thing is about right now. We would all agree with that, right? Sin that hurts somebody is bad. But here's the problem that we have. In America today, there is an imaginary line between these two. And most of that comes from a denial of the very existence of sin. So we have this sort of imaginary line in here that says, well, okay, as long as sin doesn't hurt anybody, it's okay. But when it crosses the line, then it hurts people. Okay, after 41 years of pastoring and talking to thousands of people through the years, I want to ask a third, a third or bring a question that's a third statement. Is there sin that doesn't hurt anybody? And I can tell you the answer to that question is no. There is no sin. See, here's the thing. Right now, our discussion is around sexual harassment, and rightfully so, and long overdue, and I would love to see us deal with this once and for all. But what about the other sins that are hurting people? I mean, where's the discussion about easy divorce for the last 60 years, where somebody just decides he wants another woman? I mean, who's talking about the children who have been hurt by that? Who's talking about abortion today? You know, one of the biggest questions I've never had resolved, I thought about this when I was a kid. I was in high school when Roe versus Wade came down. The culture never deals with this question like it should. If a woman is not keeping her baby, it's a fetus. If a woman is keeping her baby, it's a baby. You know, when we talk about why, why it's okay to have abortion on demand, the idea, well, it's not really a human being yet. But you talk to a woman who's pregnant who's about to have a sonogram to find out the sex of her. She doesn't say, I'm going to find out the sex of my fetus. She said, I'm going to find the sex of my baby. Now, I want to tell you something, and I want to preach because someday I'm going to stand before God, and I want to be straight. There, it is a demonic, wicked culture that can play that gymnastic game. To say, it's a baby if I don't want to... If it's a baby... To say it's a baby if I want to keep it, but it's just a fetus and a piece of trash if I don't want to keep it. That, ladies and gentlemen, is demonic. And that is where we are in America. And the thing I'm saying is, until we come back and repent of sin in our lives, we can deal with these situations a la carte and nothing is going to happen. I say that today because with social media, Americans have never had so much power. We need a generation of people who will lovingly stand up and be like Joseph and say wrong is wrong and right is right and it's not personal. Whether it's me or someone else, wrong is wrong because God says it's wrong and right is right because God says it's right. And I really believe that if we will start articulating that, we might just see a turnaround in this nation that Washington can't produce, Lord knows Topeka can't produce. Well, let me get back to the sermon, all right. Think about those things. Well, when I say Joseph is simple, don't think he's dumb, because he's not. He, he just doesn't have creative loopholes for thinking about what's right or what's wrong. He doesn't overthink things to the point of complication. And most of all, if you're wondering, and if we go back to the question, so what, why are we talking about Joseph? Well, it could be that we might find value in the fact that God chose him to be the one who raised up the Christ child. So I would say he is pretty important. Now, when we meet Joseph, everything is good. Life is good for him. He's engaged. I need to let you know that engagement betrothal during the time of Jesus was as binding as marriage. So consequently, to break an engagement would be the same thing as a divorce. So Joseph is in a scenario where he is now engaged. He is counting the days and months until he gets married. And he has found that special someone. He has found what Joseph would say is a very good, good woman. 
And by the way, I know that many of you at New Spring are very young and you're single and you're looking for a mate. Let me just tell you what the Bible says I believe to look for when you're looking for a person, well, not only to marry, but to date. I use this verse in my mother-in-law's funeral. I preach from Proverbs 31 for her. And I love what Proverbs 31, 11 says. Again, if you're thinking about getting married someday, here's what you want to look for. This is about a woman, but it works just as well for a man. The Bible says her husband can trust her. She will greatly enrich his life. And I love this statement. She brings him good and not harm all the days of his life. If you're looking for a man or a woman, you want to look for those three things, those three qualities. You know, I've talked to people who are on the breakup stage of a marriage. And oftentimes I would ask them, what was it that drew you together? And the woman would say, oh, he made me laugh. And the guy would say, oh, she was hot. Now, those are okay things to get, but those aren't the primary things. What we learn in Proverbs to, to look for is to look for that person that you can trust, to look for that person who will enrich your life, and that person who will do, good every, do you good and not harm every day of your life. So Joseph thinks that he has found that woman, and so life for him at the beginning of the story is very good. But without warning, life turns sour. How many of us have, how many of us have discovered that you can wake up in a different world than you go, went to sleep in the night before. And so that happens to Joseph because in Joseph's case, it turns out that his fiance is pregnant and it's not his baby. Joseph can't compute these things, but there's no mistaking the obvious. His good girl has done a bad thing. He never imagined it was in her. He never saw it coming. He never saw this kind of behavior in her, but there's no doubt about it. His good girl has done a bad thing. His fiance is pregnant. It's not his baby. But Joseph is a decent guy, a truly decent guy. And even though his heart is crushed, he's not after revenge. Here's what the Bible says as we get to know Joseph in Matthew 1 verse 19. Joseph, her fiance, was a good man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. I was intrigued by that expression, good man in Greek. And I found it interesting because it almost carries with it the idea of a carpenter's square. How ironic that we're talking about Joseph. In other words, when Joseph made his decisions, he didn't make his decisions by the feeling of the moment. He felt that there was a higher standard, just like a carpenter would appeal to a square to see if his or her work was right. And so Joseph, in fact, one translation, I don't use this translation very much, but I like what it said about Joseph. It said he was a guy who always made the right choice. And why is that significant right now? Well, because although Joseph's heart is crushed and stepped on by Mary's supposed behavior, he is more concerned about Mary's reputation than he is about his own. And when we read the story, he is such a decent guy that he's thinking to himself, I am just going to end this thing quietly and not put Mary to shame. Well, you can do the math with me here. And you know what's going to happen because Joseph now is going to bear all the responsibility for the breakup of the engagement. Because no one's going to know, Joseph's not telling anybody why he's breaking up the engagement. So people are going to guess, wow, here's a dirty guy. I mean, he, he asked this woman to marry him and now he's breaking his word and he's backing out of the marriage. So Joseph is going to take that shame. But wait till people find out that Mary's pregnant. You know what people are going to say. He got her pregnant and he dumped her. He got what he wanted and he left. Joseph is willing to have that backsplash on him in order to protect Mary's reputation. That is a decent guy. And that doesn't even begin to tell the whole story here. Let me take you a little deeper. 
while you're still trying to think about is Joseph an important guy, I want you to know what normally would happen in those days. If a betrothal was broken, if an engagement was broken because one party had been found to be unfaithful, the aggrieved party would go to the town square with the presence of the woman he was engaged to, and he would basically say, I am washing my hands publicly of her. She's been unfaithful to me. She's pregnant, and it's not my baby. I am publicly breaking this engagement. In those days, what could happen is that the people of that town would take that person to the outskirts of the city and stone them to death. Now, I want you to think about something. What happens if Joseph, in order to get his pound of flesh, brings Mary to the town square and they take her outside the city and they stone her to death when she is carrying in her body the person who can keep you out of hell? Now how important do you think Joseph is? Well, he doesn't do that. And that's amazing to me. But I want to take this message now in a different direction because I just want you to consider that Joseph is in a crisis and not just any crisis, he's in the crisis that, that is going to blow up his life. His girl cheated, he's going to bear the disgrace and the shame. This is the kind of crisis that ruins your life. And Joseph is to the place, and I don't know if any of you have ever been here, Joseph is to the place where he is basically sitting down thinking, this ends my life. This is the crisis I cannot recover from. But along comes the angel of God and says, surprise, Joseph. I know you're in a crisis, but let me tell you what you don't know. Surprise, God's in this crisis. And that's when the Bible tells us in Matthew 1.20, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Well, I know that your crisis and my crisis is not like necessarily Joseph's crisis. But what can we learn from all this? Well, let me give you a few things and we'll be finished here. I was working on this message a few weeks ago and I had, I'm old school, so I have papers everywhere with notes. And I tried to think about how would Joseph feel? And before I realized it, I took my marker and all across my notes, I wrote one word, alone. I think that's how Joseph felt. No Mary. No family to talk to. Can't talk to the people in the town. I think Joseph had to feel completely alone. But God came along and said, Joseph, you're not by yourself in this crisis. The reason why this is important, I'm talking to some of you, and you're in a crisis today, and you feel like you're all alone, but I want you to know you're not alone. If you're God's child, you're God's daughter, God's son, you're not by yourself in this crisis. Okay, let's just start for the next few minutes to unpack what we learn in a crisis. I don't know if this is the most important thing I'm going to say all day, but it sure ranks at the top. In every crisis, there's a bad part and there's a God part. And right out of the box, if you'll think about that, you'll understand there are two faulty reactions to that. If you don't know that there's a bad part, there is a part that is intrinsically bad and there's a part that is God. If you don't recognize that, you can make a couple of mistakes. The first mistake is to assume that God is the crisis and to blame God. The other mistake is to look at your crisis and say, this is so bad, I don't see how God could possibly be in this crisis and to feel like you're alone. 
So today, for a few moments, I want to unpack the idea that in all of our crises, there is always a legitimately bad part, and there is a God part. Let's start with the bad part, because in Joseph's case, well, of course, there's going to be scandal attached to him the rest of his life. In fact, it seems that this scandal went on past the ministry of Jesus, because as Jesus was teaching one day, he upset his enemies, and they said to Jesus, we aren't illegitimate children. So consequently, there was a rumor that went around throughout not only the rest of Joseph's life, but even the ministry of Jesus, there was a scandal attached to Jesus' birth. And that's, you know, that's how it's going to be in your crisis. I mean, even, even as some, something as glorious as the birth of the Messiah, there was still a bad part. I mean, God didn't tell everybody in town. Imagine if Joseph had tried to tell all his friends, hey, an angel came to me and said that Mary's pregnant, but there's no man involved. His friends are going to say, are you, Joseph, you're crazy, man. So he's got to deal with it. There's a bad part. I, I think it's important that as a communicator for God that I say those things because there's, there is a kind of preaching that says that if you're in a crisis, it's all God and God is okay with everything that goes on. For me, if I believe that some parts of the crisis are just so horrible, it would lead me to question the nature of God. But when I look at the Bible, I discover that God is very honest about the fact that we are in a broken world and there are aspects of our crisis that are not from God. They are just bad things that we're going to have to deal with. We live in a broken world. There are going to be sleepless nights. There are going to be painful memories. There are going to be scars that won't heal. And so in Joseph's case, as in your and my case, if you're going through a crisis, there is a bad part. But for every God follower, there's a God part. Every crisis that you and I go through, there is a God part. Have you ever, have you ever considered the fact that if you look at all the miracles in the Bible, there's a crisis behind every one of them. In fact, the miracle was the response to crisis in every, nearly every situation. If Israel had not been trapped by the Red Sea, God wouldn't have opened it. If Daniel hadn't been thrown in the lion's den, God would not have sent his angel to close the mouths of the lions. If Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not thrown into the fire furnace, Jesus would not have come and stayed with them. If the disciples hadn't been in the storm, Jesus wouldn't have calmed the storm. If Lazarus hadn't died, Jesus wouldn't have raised him from the dead. When you look at the Bible, all the miracles are a response to a crisis. Well, okay, we've learned that in a crisis there's a bad part and there's a God part. But how do you respond when you're in a crisis? Guys, I want to take you for just a few moments to look at how Joseph dealt with this. I mean, to me, Joseph's response to all this is just brilliant. We've been talking for the last three weeks how that the Christmas season is a season of surprises, one surprise after another. Now, the first two weeks we've talked about surprises, God gets a little bit of pushback when he comes to bring the message of a, crisis, of a surprise. I mean, when God says to Zechariah and Elizabeth, surprise, it's not too late. Zechariah said, it's not possible. I'm an old man. My wife's an old woman. We said he shouldn't have said that. And on top of that, you know, the angels said, all right, then, if you don't believe me, you won't be able to talk for nine months until the baby is born. And not, I mean, when Mary spoke, she wasn't like pushing back like Zechariah did. But when God said to Mary, you're going to have a baby, Mary's like, how can this be? I'm a virgin. But I want you to notice something about Joseph. When God comes along and speaks into his life, as God speaks into our life through his word, I want you to see how Joseph reacts. For just a moment, I want to read some scripture to you. You watch with me. In Matthew 1, verse 23, 
The Bible says the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son. They will call him Emmanuel, which, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded, took Mary, his wife, but he did not have sexual relations with her till her son was born, and Joseph named him Jesus. Matthew 2.13, angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother. The angel said, stay there until I tell you to return because Herod's going to search for the child to kill him. That night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary. Matthew 2.19, when Herod died, angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Get up, the angel said. Take the child and his mother back to the land of Israel because those who were trying to kill the child are dead. So Joseph got up and returned to the land of Israel with Jesus and his mother. Matthew 2.22, when he learned the new ruler of Judea was Herod's son Archelaus, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned in a dream, he left for the region of Galilee. So the family went and lived in a town called Nazareth. You noticing a trend here? I mean, God says, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. He got married to Mary. God said, call the boy's name Jesus. Called his name Jesus. God said, go to Egypt. He goes to Egypt. God said, come back from Egypt. Comes back from Egypt. God says, when you come back, don't go to Judea. Go to Nazareth. He comes back and goes to Nazareth. I mean, over and over and over, Joseph just does what God says to. I would argue Joseph is a genius because he just obeys God. Let me tell you why he's a genius. When you're going through a crisis, crises by nature are foggy. We want to do two things in a crisis. We want to know how to understand it and how to stop it. But for everybody who's been through a crisis of health or a breakup of a marriage or a financial downturn or um, a loss of a job, loss of a career, just a huge disappointment in life. For everybody who's been through that, you know how fuzzy everything can be. And here's, and I wish I knew how to preach because you, you need a more intelligent preacher than I am to explain this. There is a bad part and there is a God part. Sometimes in the midst of a crisis, it's hard to identify what's the bad part and what's the God part. Now, when it's all over and we can look back in retrospect, we can say, oh, God was in that crisis. But a lot of times while we're going through it, we don't see that. So what do you do when you're in the midst of a crisis and your world is falling apart and you don't know what to do and you don't even know how to identify what's going on in your life, whether it's good or bad? You just simply do what God tells you to do. You're like Joseph. You just put that carpenter square of God's word up there and says, if God, if God says do this, I'm going to do it. If God says don't do this, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to overthink it. I'm not going to fuzz it all up. I'm just going to do what God says do. And that was Joseph. You know, we all love Romans 8, 28, don't we? Those of us who are God followers. The Bible says we know that in all things God works for good to those who love him, to those who are called according, called according to his purpose. But it's one thing to know Romans 8, 28. It's something else to live like it's true. Well, I tend to be a little bit of a skeptical person so I'm guessing somebody is sitting out here with my personality and you're saying, I don't see what Joseph got out of this. I mean, you know, it seems like all he got out of the birth of Jesus was trouble. I mean, he has this crisis and his life blows apart and he doesn't even get to live to see Jesus do all these miracles and stuff. I don't really know that Joseph got anything out of life. Well, I'd argue that Joseph got two things and I'll leave you with those. 
The first thing that Joseph got was he got to make a difference. I mean, you think about what he got to do. I mean, his responsibility was to lead the royal family and to bring up Jesus. I mean, I look at that and think that's an enormous responsibility for God to place on one individual. And Joseph did a good job. He got to make a difference. But this is my favorite. Joseph got to have experiences with God, Jesus, that nobody else got to have. You know, when you read the story of Jesus' ministry, there are times when things that Jesus did were observed by lots of people. I mean, basically every miracle he performed was watched by 12 guys at least. When he fed the multitude, 20,000 people saw it. I mean, so many things that Jesus did, there were thousands of people who saw. Do you realize that Joseph has memories that nobody else has of Jesus? (laughs) All those 30 years we want to know about that we don't know about Joseph knows about those. He knows what it's like to put a hammer in that tiny hand. He knows what it's like to teach the very basics and the rudiments of carpentry to the Son of God. Oh, like I say, I always hope God keeps this stuff on videotape or whatever they watch stuff on in heaven. I'm sure it's high def, (laughs) ultra high def. There's one scene I want to see more than any other. I want to see that moment where Joseph takes the baby into the town registry and they're filling out the birth certificate and they say, what is his name? The Bible says Joseph is the one who said his name is Jesus. That I want to see. I want to see that moment where Jesus is given his name officially. Why do you say that, Mark? Do you know where the name Jesus comes from? Well, in the Old Testament, there were different names for God. For instance, some of you who've studied your Bible, you've seen names like Jehovah Shalom, uh, Jehovah Hoshea, Jehovah Rama, um, all these names for God. They have some aspect of his character. Well, the name Jehovah Hoshea means God is our salvation. Jehovah is God. Hoshea is the word for Savior salvation. Jehovah Hoshea. In time, it was shortened to Jehoshua, and then it was shortened to Joshua. And then its Hellenistic application was Jesus. So Joseph got to basically name Jesus as God's salvation. I stand before you today as somebody who's been through a lot of crises in my life. You don't pastor a growing church for 33 years without being terrified out of your skin a lot of times. Well, what did, what did I get out of that? <clears throat> we say, well, Mark, you, you got to lead a great church. That's true. I got to be able to make a difference because of God's grace and his work in me. But I'll tell you the thing I enjoy the most, even more than that, is I got to experience God in those crises. And if you ever catch me sometime and I've got time to talk, you might, tell me to, you might ask me to talk about some of the things that we've gone through here at New Spring where life was impossible and God showed up. And you know the weird thing about it is I won't tell you about the difficulties because I've forgotten most of them. I will tell you about how I experienced God in those crises. So for anybody here today who's going through a crisis, I want to just give you some good news. That although there are some bad things to your crisis what people are doing to you, saying to you, what they're taking away from you, that's not God. There are bad things in a crisis. 
but God's in your crisis. He's not your crisis. He's in your crisis. And the good news is, if you will just obey him, he will use you to change the world. And you're going to have memories of interchanges and exchanges with God that you can share with your grandkids. Thank you very much for being here. God bless.